how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hello, strangers. I am finally back. And it feels good to be back. I feel like I've been away from a family for so long. <laughs> I got the vapors. Anyway. <laughs> so, as always, I'm here back with my usual cringe, cringiness. And just, if I don't make you guys laugh, at least I make you, at least I make you guys feel better. Because you're not as sad. And you don't have a pathetic life like myself. <laughs> So I think you feel a lot better about yourself. Anyways, um, so yeah, it's, I've been away for quite a while. Not a, quite a while, I guess. Uh, what was it? Like I missed an, two episodes or an episode, I think. Ah, who really cares? Who's really keeping count? I'm not sure none of you are. But I hate to sound so self-deprecating, but that's my specialty. So it has been a while since I'm back, and it's good to be back. I'm trying to get into the routine of everything. Um, cause my schedule with, cause I, as some of you may know, if you follow me on Instagram at strange talk podcast, you will know that, um, I've been pretty busy cause I recently started a new job. So, uh, my schedule is uh, kind of a weird schedule because I have a mid shift, I guess you can call it a mid shift schedule. So I start work at 1230 and then I get off at 1030 at night. It's 10 hours. And so, Trying to find the time in between that to record is proving to be a little difficult as I'm trying to adjust to uh, my new schedule and sleeping arrangements. Um, but uh, I believe not this week coming up, but I believe my third week of work, um, I'll actually have my actual schedule because right now I'm just doing training and everything and I'm learning the new job functions and what have you and whatnot. And my third week is when I finally get my set schedule, which my set schedule is um, I'll be working Sundays and Monday, and then I'll have Tuesday and Wednesday off, and then I'll have um, I'll work Thursday and Friday, and then I'll get Saturday off. So I have one weekend at least that I'm free. So to prepare for Monday's episodes, because if you're new to the podcast, welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. And it sucks for you if you're new a new listener and you just found out about strange talk podcast because I haven't put anything out. So you probably think it's not going to be any around anymore, but nope, it's still here. Um, but so I will probably most likely be recording on Friday night or Saturday morning and editing them and preparing them so they can be ready by Monday. Um, I'm hoping I can do that. If not Tuesday and Wednesdays are the days that I'm going to be recording. And it's good that I have Tuesday off because Wednesdays, if you're a new listener, I usually have a, another side story, if you will, every Wednesday that comes out, it's called this week in crime where I read a bunch of news articles that listeners send me. And then top listener that usually sends me a bunch of shit. And he's really awesome for it is at Rocky, the collector. If you follow, you can follow him on Instagram, to see his life. He's a big avid horror fan and collector. 
and uh, overall pretty cool, chill dude. Uh, so yeah, so that's why I've been pretty busy and I've been away. Um, probably most of you probably thought I just finally just ended it all, <laughs> but no, unfortunately not. I'm still here. Um, but aside from that, uh, a good show that I've been watching though, when I get off of work, uh, it's, it's really good, really, really good. And it's on Netflix. It's with uh, Ricky Gervais. So if you're not um, a fan of his comedy, then you probably won't like this show, but it's a really good show. A really good show is a lot. It caught me by surprise because I didn't think I would like it. And it actually is a really, really good show. And it's called Afterlife. And I'm looking forward to the new season as I just finished it. It's a pretty short season, only six episodes. But it's actually really good, so give it a shot. But that's not why you're here. You are here to listen to a new episode. And for today, I have two interesting cases. Um, and the first case, which I will be getting right now. So... This first case is of the vampire cult or the vampire clan, if you've never heard of this. So here it begins. A group of teenagers followed a young man dressed in black as he wove his way through the trees on a path all of them knew by heart. Eventually, they made it to a dilapidated building in the middle of the woods. It was covered in graffiti with broken out windows. You know, the usual stuff when you find a derelict building. This was their lair, a place where the teens could drink one another's blood in the firelight under the watchful gaze of the boy in black. His name, the boy in black, was Roderick Rod Farrell. They were his vampire clan. <laughs> and he called himself the Sago because he believed himself to be a 500-year-old vampire. And after this one night, he would be a killer. Rod Farrell's cult of blood drinkers included Howard Anderson, Dana or Diana, no, that's not Diana, it's Dana or Dana Cooper, Charity Casey, and Heather Wendorf. The group was known in the town of Moray, Kentucky, like most lost youth are, as troublemakers and outsiders. Pretty much all the old people would just look at them and just say, there's something wrong with those people. Why do I make people sound like... I always go for the water boy. Um, yeah, anyways. All five members had their own baggage. They found acceptance in Rod's vampire fantasy and embraced the culture. Heather would later recount that while she didn't think any of them took the vampirism seriously, it was something to have, something special in your life you felt secret about. While all of them adored Farrell, it was Heather who stole his heart. She made his blood pump, his heart pump, and beating fast, and blood going down to the other parts of his bodies that grow large. She told him about how her home life was hell, and how she felt trapped by her parents. Some reports state she told him her father hurt her, and that stirred something in Farrell. I can't believe he wronged you. Something with roots deep in his past, and of his own abuse. His mother, Sandra Gibson, brought him into the world when she was just 16 years old. She'd only been married to his father for about three weeks before they split up, and she moved back in with her parents. An emotionally damaged teenager, now suddenly a mother, doesn't always make the best decisions, so it's gonna, it's gonna be a disaster, if to say the least. But she doted on her son, the only man in her life. Yes, it was. 
And it's funny because it, it reminds me of a meme that always, that always makes me laugh. But it's like it shows a bunch of like little boys, like little kids, like maybe two, three years old. And the memes, it showed them like dressed really nice. But it goes, single mothers always dress their boys like the man that left that's not in their life. <laughs> and I just, I find that very funny. And it seems fitting. It was Sandra who first exposed Rod to her fascination with vampires. They, they're, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> they would watch Dracula movies together. And she even got him involved later with the video game known as Vampire the Masquerade. And if you don't know about it, it was, it started off as a video game that was actually poorly reviewed, but for some reason it amassed a cult following. And then they actually approved upon it through like mods. So if you're unfamiliar with video games in general, you, this is the part where I probably lose you. But mods are basically where users like me, just a normal Joe that is has no life and is able to go on the computer and spend most of their time like me on the computer, they're able to just mod the video game. So they brought new life. They breathed new life to the video game known as Vampire the Masquerade. And it grew even more popular to this day. And I believe there was a remake not too long ago that just came out. Anyways, back to the subject at, at hand, which would become a big part of his fantasy and his delusional states of thinking he's Visago, a 500-year-old vampire. There are those that believe that her love went beyond what a mother should have for a child. Rod himself stated as he grew older, he developed a complex relationship with his mother. A love-hate dynamic. Some reports state he confided his grandfather molested him, and many suspect that abuse wasn't just by the old man. They go on to cite letters written by Sandra, who's 34 at the time, to a 14-year-old boy. Okay, this is what is in the letter. I'm about to read you the words. These are not my words, so don't think I'm re reading this to a 14-year-old boy, but it's what his mother wrote. I long to be near you for your embrace, Sandra wrote to the child. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Moray. You will then come for me and cross me over. I will be your bride for eternity, and you, Messiah. Ooh, steamy noise. Rod would travel with the rest of the cult from Kentucky to Eustis, Florida, on November 25th, 1996, to rescue Heather from her parents, or her captors. That rescue ended with both her father, Richard Wendorf, and her mother, Ruth Wendorf, dead. Farrell and Anderson beat them to death with a crowbar and danced over their bodies. So, if you're this sounding somewhat familiar and you actually pay attention and you don't skip the intro, Rod Farrell can be heard speaking in the new intro for Strange Talk Podcast. It's the one where he goes, it was in a childish manner. Well, he doesn't actually talk like that, but he's like, it was impishly in a childless manner, but... We almost embraced the idea. I, I, I don't exactly remember what he says, but but we danced over their bodies before um, before they were even dead, and it stirred something in me. He says something like that. But yeah, that's him. That's actually the Rod Farrell, which is the subject of today's episode. That's actually him speaking about when, well, before he killed Heather's mother and father. Rod beat in Richard's skull over 
a dozen times while he slept on the couch. He then bludgeoned Ruth when she entered the living room from the kitchen. Doesn't that suck? Like, you're just, I mean, I don't know. Like, you're alive one minute and she's probably just in the kitchen just making a cup of tea, tea or coffee or whatever the fuck. And she just like, <laughs> she just walks in and, and then all of a sudden she just walks in on seeing her husband being beat to death with a crowbar while fucking weird ass, paley ass white dude, Rod Farrell or Visago is just dancing around the body. She's probably like, Richard, or oh, and then they just come in. That sucks. So according to Rod Farrell, he didn't truly know what made him kill Richard, but he had no intention of killing Ruth until she surprised him and tossed scalding coffee on him. Howard Anderson, oh, she was making coffee. Howard Anderson tells a different story, that he had tried to calm the frenzied Farrell before the bloodshed started. Whichever story was true, they both ended with the two boys fleeing the house, covered in both Richard and Ruth's blood. In their car to just add more insult to injury. They picked up the girls, including Heather, and drove to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They were halfway there before Jennifer Wendorf, Heather's sister, came home to find the bodies. The investigators were then faced with one of the most brutal home invasions Florida had seen. Why, how, both of those questions can be answered with one name. She had run away before to meet up with Farrell and the others only to find out the car, the rescue ride, had broken down. So when the Colt came up with the idea to steal her parents' car, Heather struck up a deal with Rod. She would go back and unlock the home so, she, so he could steal the keys to the car, but only if he would cross her over. An act that involved her drinking his blood. They sealed the blood pack in a graveyard when police came and arrested them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Charity Casey had called her mother for money and gave away their location. Heather claimed she had no idea her parents were dead. After the teens were arrested on November 28th, the whole case went up like a sideshow attraction. Rod Farrell would tell the press it was a rival vampire gang that had framed them for, kill for the killings. Apparently there's just like, rival vampire gangs out there so be safe fucking people like apparently there's a shit ton of fucking vampire gangs that meet in the night and they just fucking rumble a video would be found of rod weeping and laughing after the murders while in louisiana police would release police would release that they found a letter from heather wendorf that she had left for her parents on the night she ran away that read i love you both so much the case became so highly publicized that jury selection was twice as hard. As the news grew tighter around all their necks, bonds began to break. Casey told police that Rod had arrived covered in blood the night of the murder. Anderson, his partner in the dance of death, combined into his mom and a cellmate that he had tried to stop Rod, who had just gone crazy. Even Heather, Farrell's Juliet, bowed off the stage. She had proclaimed her innocence and ignorance of the murders immediately. Oh, what? I didn't know he was going to do that. In letters to her sister, she placed full blame on Rod. A grand jury found Heather blameless in her parents' slaying, and she even gave a disposition to the trial team. Not disposito, but disposition. 
How did Rod plan to defend himself? Now, see, if there's drums when I said that, that then when I would when I said the whole Despacito bit, they would have been... How did Rod plan to defend himself? Now that this vampire cult members had turned against him. When the police ruled out his story of another rival vampire gang doing a frame job, he told his attorneys that he suffered from blackout spells. Oh, oh, oh how convenient. And they could last for hours, and he couldn't remember anything that happened during these so-called blackouts. You couldn't see me because it's a podcast, but I did the finger quotes thing. His mother came forward to cast doubt on Heather's innocence, stating that Heather had been talking about wanting her parents dead for a long time, and almost like as if she bewitched her son with some vampiress spell that just made him commit the crime. To their credit, his defense attorneys tried their best. They tried to put forward that Farrell had been high on drugs and booze the night that he killed Heather's parents. Also, he wasn't in the right mind anyway, presenting a diagnosis of personality disorder and Asperger's syndrome. <laughs> I don't know. I always laugh because obviously it sounds like because I'm fucking immature and it sounds like Asperger's, but it's Asperger's syndrome. <clears throat> The evidence, however, was just too much to contend with. Bootprints in the Wendorf's blood was matched to Farrell. Oh, and there was the confession Rod Farrell confessed after he was arrested. His lawyers had been trying to keep it out of court, but when the judge ruled that the jury would be allowed to hear it, even Johnny Cochran would have thrown in the towel. <laughs> Get You know who that is, right? From the OJ trial? Uh, you know, if it doesn't fit, you must equip. Go back and listen to the episode that I did with Kills and Chills because I think they say it on that episode in particular. They do say it, actually. Anyways, yeah, that was fun. It contains such damning words as when Rod spoke about killing Ruth. And this is what he said in his confession. By that time, you know, it was pretty obvious I'd have blood on me and a crowbar in my hand. I was fixing to say, yeah, I want to have coffee with you, son of a bitchin' smartass. But anyway... And that's when she lunged at me, because I was actually going to let her live. But after she lunged at me, I just took the bottom of the crowbar and, and kept stabbing through her skull. Just stabbing and stabbing through her skull. Whenever she fell down, I just continually beat her until I saw her brains falling on the floor, because that pissed me off. She bitch threw hot coffee in my face. My beautiful Visago face. At that point, Rod Farrell realized that his chances of walking out of that courtroom a free man was about as high as a snowball's chance in hell. He pled guilty and told the court that no one else was involved, that Anderson was just there and didn't even touch the Wendorfs. At 17, he was sentenced to death, making him the youngest inmate on death row at the time. A record he would hold until the year 2000 when his sentence was commuted to life in prison without the chance of parole. Upon his plea, records recount that his mother shouted, We live forever! <laughs> I'm not making this up. She really said that. The judge showed little mercy on Howard Anderson. Whatever his real role in the killings truly was, Anderson also pled guilty and was sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole. The two girls admitted their guilt as well. Dana Cooper was sentenced to 17 and a half years, while Charity Casey was given 10 and a half years. But what happened to Heather Wendorf, you might be asking? And what was her true role in these tragic events? Well, let me tell you. 
Was she just another victim of a Sago's memorizing, bewitching vampire ways, delusions, or was she just the one who pointed the loaded gun that was Rod at her parents and pulled the trigger? I mean, you never know. She possibly could have. Vagina is a very, very powerful weapon. And if a woman knows how to wield it, well, believe me, she can take down a civilization. Since the convictions, she has changed her name and started a new life. Dana Cooper has also come out and stated Heather had no idea of Rod's plan. Cooper mirrors Anderson's account of the night of the killings that Rod had been worked up and talked about murdering Richard and Ruth, Heather's parents, before they had even left to steal the car. The vampire cult murders, as they came to be called, have fascinated the world over. Rod and his vampires became the subject of everything from films to books, such as The Embrace by Aphrodite Jones. They even inspired the legendary Shack Shakes to write Blood on the Bluegrass, a modern-day dark folk song. Um, I don't know if I'll get in trouble, so hopefully I won't, but I will be playing part of that song, Legendary Shack Shakers. Never heard of this band, but the song Blood on the Bluegrass is what inspired this song. Well, inspired this folk band to make the song. So let's get a little taste of it. This is the song, Legendary Shack Shakes. Um, Blood on the Bluegrass that was inspired by the vampire cult murders. Oh, it's pretty, it's pretty good, I'm not gonna lie. Sounds interesting. Hopefully I don't get sued. Please don't, please don't sue me, legendary shack shakes, shakers. Please don't sue me. So this next case that I have for you is a bit of a short one, which is why I'm leaving it in the middle. <clears throat> but... I find it to be really interesting because it's actually really fascinating that it actually happened, and it is very true that it happened indeed. And it's not anything to deal with murder or serial killer or a cult, because I know that's usually what I talk about on Strange Talk Podcast, but I find this story to be strange, but in a really good way. And it's a, a story that actually has a happy ending. So, you know, let, let, let's let's shed a little bit of happiness in this uh, fucking podcast, shall we? So. This case is known as the Miracle on Ice. 19-year-old Jean Hillard was living in her small hometown of Langby, Minnesota in December of 1980. As of 2017, the town had a population of a mere 87 and just outside its limits are forests, lakes, and farmland in the north-central part of the state. Langby is the middle of nowhere and so was Hillard on the night of December 20th, 1980, when she made her way home from a night out with friends in negative 22 degree weather at around midnight. She said, I had gone into town and met some friends. Hillard had just left the Faustin American Legion, where all the young adults in Langby typically spent the evening as it was the coolest hangout for townsfolk in that part of Minnesota. Her dad's Ford LTD had rear-wheel drive and no anti-lock brakes, which made for a dangerous vehicle to have while navigating a frozen, icy road. When the car slid into a ditch, Hillard, in her new cowboy boots, began to walk for help. Her friend, Wally Nelson, why the hell does everybody have a friend in Minnesota or some fucking country town named Wally? 
<laughs> I fucking noticed that. And other stories that I've read that I haven't featured, but I plan to sometime in the future. There's a lot of Wally Nelsons or Wallies for that matter in country towns. Was but two miles down the road after all. But Nelson's home seemed further away that night than Hiller could remember, and she grew extremely frustrated. I'd get over one hill thinking this place would be there, and it wasn't, she said. When she finally saw the lights of Wally's place, everything went black. At dawn, around 7 a.m., Nelson woke up with a woman he'd brought home the night before. <laughs> nice. He then noticed a little hunk in his snow-covered lawn about 15 feet from his door. It was Hillard, in a coat and mittens. Nelson knew Hillard well because at the time, she was dating his best friend. But here she was, frozen stiff, with her eyes still wide open on his front lawn. She had collapsed mere seconds before she would have reached her friend's door. I grabbed her by the collar and skidded her into the porch. I thought she was dead, froze stiffer than a board but I saw a few bubbles coming out of her nose, Nelson recalled. It was evident that after she had collapsed, Jean Hillard had crawled a few feet in the snow before freezing to stillness. Suffice it to say that finding a frozen body on his front yard was an awkward end to the evening Nelson had with the woman he had brought home, especially when they discovered that Hillard's body was so stiff that, he coupled, that the couple couldn't fit her in the cab of his pickup truck. They had to take the young woman's car instead. Not only that, in order to fit her in the car, Wally Nelson had to actually insert her body because she was so stiff that he had to put her body in diagonally. They drove 10 minutes to Foston to the nearest hospital. There, doctors were not optimistic about reviving Jean Hillard. The attending medical staff had little hope for the teenager. Her skin was so frozen that they couldn't pierce it with hyper. Hyper, oh my god, hyperdermic needles. Fuck, why can I not speak? Ah, professionalism here at Strange Talk Podcast. The needles just broke on contact. Her body temperature was so low that it didn't register on a thermometer. Her face was an ashen gray color and her eyes didn't respond to changes in light. Even though they figured she was dead, medical staff decided to gradually warm up her body with heating pads. Physicians determined her temperature was 88 degrees, a full 10 degrees below normal. Eventually, they got a faint pulse of 12 beats per minute. At this point, doctors believe their patient might still be alive. We can save her, doctor. Dr. George Sather, the attending physician, said, I thought she was dead. But then when we picked up an extremely faint whimper, we knew there was a person existing then. It took a little bit for the medical staff to realize this, but they did. The reaction didn't appear until two or three hours after she started thawing out, Dr. Sather said. The body was cold, completely solid, just like a piece of meat out of a deep freeze. Boy, did it look tasty. By the middle of that morning, Hillard awoke with spasms. At noon, she was talking coherently, worried that her father might think about wrecking his car. Worrying about what her father might think about her wrecking his car. I totally fucked that sentence up. Hillard felt normal, and the whole ordeal proved to be but a casual speed bump in the overall path of her life. It's like I fell asleep and woke up in the hospital, she said. I didn't see the light or anything like that. It was kind of disappointing. 
So many people think about that, and I didn't get anything. Well, geez, God, I guess maybe she was going to hell. <laughs> but to everyone else, Jean Hillard was a miracle. The miracle on ice. <gasps> they said the name. Her story was told to local churches, national media, and she was even on the Today Show. Could you imagine, like, everybody at the church was like, look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. <laughs> I was interviewed by Tom Brokaw, and I took my mother on that trip. That was fun, Hillard recalled. Despite her miracle on ice, the incident didn't seem to shake the young woman. Though even modern medicine 40 years later says what happened to her was astounding. Dr. David Plummer of the University of Minnesota is an expert on reviving people with hypothermia, a condition wherein the human body shuts down because it gets too cold. He says he handled about a dozen cases of reviving someone who has been frozen over 10 years of his career. Plummer said, We have patients you can knock on like wood. They feel rock-solid frozen that in no way dissuades us from the resuscitation... I'm going to attempt that word again. <laughs> that in no way dissuades us from the resuscitation attempt. Yay! And we do have a track record of success with that. No one is dead until they're warm and dead. <laughs> Medical science determined that as a person's body cools, blood flows slows. Blood flow slows down to a crawl, just as it would for a bear in hibernation. At this point, a person's body requires less oxygen. When a person's blood flow increases at the same rate as their body temperature, they often recover. That's what may have happened with the heating pads in rural, rural Minnesota, which Plummer said was nothing short of a miracle. Modern medicine uses a special device that warms a patient's blood before sending it back into their body. The warm blood in turn heats up internal organs. The same technique saved Justin Smith's life in February of 2015. He was walking home in sub-zero weather in Pennsylvania when he collapsed. Smith was 25 and headed home from a party. His father found his frozen body 12 hours later. At the emergency room, doctors determined his internal temperature was 68 degrees. They immediately started CPR and did so for two hours until they could get Smith to a more advanced medical facility in Allentown. Doctors gradually brought Smith back to life from the brink of death. He spent two weeks in a coma, but his brain showed no signs of damage due to the lack of oxygen. At 68 degrees, doctors say Smith is the lowest body temperature from which they have ever brought someone back. The young man says his case is nothing short of a miracle on the ice. <laughs> Just like Hillard, Smith's biological processes slowed his body down to where it conserved oxygen enough to keep him alive for several hours. While the circumstances of being frozen solid aren't ideal, the notion that deep hibernation can save people's lives is optimistic. Doctors continue to find out more and more information about this hibernation-like state as they try to save lives from not only freezing to death, but also gunshot wounds, head trauma, and heart attacks. Jean Hillard now leads pedestrian life. She suffered no ill effects from her ordeal, and she has since been married, has kids, and divorced. Oh, wow, that's a lot. She also never drives on icy roads at night. And that is the case of the miracle on ice, the story of how Jean Hillard in 1980 was frozen, stiff, almost on the brink of death, 
but came back with nothing, no side effects at all. And that to me is just truly strange that that happened. And and it's happened more than once, actually. That, <clears throat> there's even a story that I was going to include, but I don't know. I don't know if I want to include it because I try to do... Because usually when I pick my cases, I try to find um, like if it happened or not, usually is what I'm saying. Like Obviously, most of the cases that I talk about obviously happen. But there are some times where they'll either make you know, sensational, I make it more sensational than what it is, you know, just to make it more entertaining. But there was one and I try, I wanted to include it because it was interesting, but it was a 10 month old baby who froze to death, not death, but froze and was on the brink of death, but they were able to bring it back to life. And it was just about how he's living his life now. And I believe he was like 50 something years old now, I think, I don't know, but I couldn't find anything because with this story, the way I determined if it was real and it really happened is because of a website that I like to use called Snopes.com. And I'm not being paid by them, so this isn't an ad, okay? But I love Snopes.com because I use them for a lot of fact-checking. So usually when somebody sends me an article or like a case, I don't do that with Rocky the Collector because he sends me good stuff. But for other people that I don't know per se, because I don't personally know Rocky the Collector, but I trust his what he sends me and everything. So yeah. I thought it was an interesting case. So I still have one more case for you. So stay tuned. We're not going for an ad break, but just stay tuned for the next case. So this next case, which is our last case of this episode, is a very, very crazy and strange case that I have, which is called The Girl Who Lived. Our case begins on a scorchy afternoon in Berkeley, California, on the 29th of September in 1978, 15-year-old Mary Vincent was a promising dancer, having worked front stage at the Ludo de Paris in Las Vegas, as well as in Australia and Hawaii. Her future was certainly looking bright. On that fateful afternoon of September 29, 1978, Mary decided she was going to run away from home. Her parents were going through a nasty divorce, and she needed some time away from them. Los Angeles was the destination she had decided upon. As she pointed her thumb towards the hazy California sun, a blue van rolled to a halt beside her. Behind the wheels was former merchant marine seaman Lawrence Singleton, a relatively unsuspecting-looking man with grandfatherly-looking features. Singleton offered to drive Mary to Interstate 5, to which she readily accepted. As they approached Interstate 5, Singleton continued to drive. When Mary realized that he had passed the turnoff, she grabbed a pointed surveyor stick that was sitting beside the passenger seat and demanded he turn the car around. Singleton told Mary that it was an honest mistake and turned the car around to head back towards Interstate 5. A few miles down the road, Singleton pulled the car in at the side of the road and told Mary he needed to to urinate and that he couldn't wait to the nearest gas station. Mary decided to get out of the car for a breath of fresh air. As she was tying her shoelace, Singleton crept up from behind and cracked her over the head with a hammer. After brutally raping and sodomizing Mary, Singleton severed both of her arms with a hatchet. He then threw her down a 30-foot culvert in Del Puerto Canyon in Stanislas County. 
I hope I'm saying that right, Stanislaus County, and left her for dead. As Singleton sped off, he believed that he had killed Mary and that nobody would ever be able to find her body. Boy, was he wrong. (laughs) The following morning, two women came across a ghastly sight. Mary Vincent was stumbling down the road, nude, holding what remained of her mutilated arms up in the air. She was holding her arms up so that the muscles and blood would not fall out. She was rushed to a hospital where she was able to provide a detailed description of Singleton. The composite sketch was so realistic that Singleton's neighbor recognized him and called the police immediately. Under the ridiculously lenient laws of the time, Singleton was sentenced to only just 14 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence allowed. After serving just eight years and four months of that sentence, Singleton was paroled for good behavior. Shortly before his release, his psychiatric evaluation read, Because he is so out of touch with his hostility and anger, he remains an elevated threat to others' safety inside and outside prison. In addition, while incarcerated, Singleton had written several letters to Mary Vincent's lawyer, wherein he threatened her. After his parole, Vincent was terrified that he would come back to finish off what he had started. While Mary survived, she didn't feel like a survivor. After the attack, she fell into a deep depression. She had hopes and dreams of becoming a dancer one day, but after her reconstructive surgery rendered her unable to dance, she was never going to be able to dance again. She spent numerous years shuddering at the very thought of the day on September 29th, 1978. She suffered from relentless nightmares and drifted from place to place. She was unable to find a job and couldn't even afford to have her prosthetic arms fixed. She eventually filed for bankruptcy. I never smiled one time in 21 years, Mary said back in 1999. By now, however, Mary had met a man named Tom and the duo got married. Mary went on to have two sons and she attended the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. While she once considered herself a victim, she became a survivor and a victim's advocate. Beforehand, the very thought of her ordeal traumatized her. But now, she was now willing to speak publicly about that fateful afternoon in the hopes that it would prevent other young and impressionable teenagers from hitchhiking. While Mary could dance no longer, she discovered a new talent, which was drawing. She went on to say, I couldn't draw a straight line, even with a ruler. I would mess it up. This is something I woke up with after the attack, and my artwork had inspired me and given me some self-esteem. So what became of Lawrence Singleton following his release? He moved to Florida after Californian citizens shared their disdain at the thought of him being released back into their community. In fact, numerous protests of his parole were staged across the state. Drop dead Larry and get that maniac out read some of their protest banners. A couple of years after his release, a painter called police after witnessing something gruesome through a window of a home he was walking past in Tampa, Florida. The horrified caller said that he saw a nude man raising his arm again and again over a bloody woman who was slouched over his couch. He told police he had had heard bones crushing like chicken bones breaking when police arrived. They were met by none other than Lawrence Singleton in his home, and he was covered in blood. 
On the sofa inside the living room lay the lifeless body of Roxanne Hayes, a 31-year-old sex worker who had arranged a date with Singleton. He had agreed to pay her $20 for sex. Must have been a sale. Singleton had stabbed, sorry, that's, anyway, Singleton had stabbed the mother of three to death with a bowing knife. A bony knife. As news of the murder reached Mary, she knew in her heart that she had to face Singleton once again. While she wasn't required to testify at his trial, she felt as though she had to. This time, she would see that justice is served. She said in court, I was raped. I had my arms cut off. He used a hatchet. He left me to die. The stunned courtroom, as she, she told the stunned courtroom as she pointed towards Singleton with her prosthetic hook. Assistant State Jay Pruner said that the brutality of Singleton's attack on Mary and the violent murder of Roxanne are the reason that it was recommended that Singleton be sentenced to death. He said, in court, 20 years ago, Mary Vincent got into Mr. Singleton's van. Some 20 years later, Roxanne Hayes got into Mr. Singleton's van. She, unlike Mary Vincent, did not survive her meeting with Mr. Lawrence Singleton. Mary's testimony helped send Singleton to death row, where he passed away from cancer in 2001. I wanted to look into his eyes, said Mary, but now I won't be able to find out whatever it was I was looking for. I feel like I was cheated again. Singleton became a national symbol of the shortfalls within the criminal justice system. If laws had been less lenient, then Lawrence Singleton would never have been released and Roxanne Hayes would still be alive today. So that's going to do it for me on this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. I want to thank you for joining me on episode 30. Jesus, 30 episodes already. Technically, it's not 30 episodes because uh, This Week in Crime counts as episodes, so it's technically like 60 now or 50, probably. I don't know. Who cares? But... 30 actual episodes of Strange Talk Podcast, so that's cool. Um, it's good to be back and back with a bang, so uh, yeah. Um, hopefully now I can keep up with this routine, keep up with the schedule now that i am finally got a set schedule with my new job and everything, so hopefully, you know, things get picking up again and everything. Um, also, too, so... If you guys can do me the favor, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Strange Talk Podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. I don't know if you can subscribe. I think it's like follow me or something on there. I don't really know. But wherever you listen to Strange Talk Podcast, make sure you rate and review it, please, because it helps put the podcast out there. It helps, um, you know, so more people can find it. And the number one thing you can do is just speak to people who enjoy true crime or if you know people who are interested in this type of shit that I do you know and they love true crime then why not mention like hey there's this guy he's really cringy and he's kind of self-deprecating but you know hey give him a listen because he's somewhat entertaining he's a he's a likable guy (laughs) but yeah so uh go ahead and stay tuned for wednesday where i bring you this week in crime and this week in crime is where i bring you strange weird fucked up news articles from around the world or right here in good old america and if you haven't follow me on instagram at strange talk podcast 
Um, you can see, keep up to date and see all the stupid things that I post there and just be up to date on what I'm working on, what the next episodes are going to be on. I haven't really been posting that much lately because like I said, I've been busy with work and just getting into the swing of things over there and just, you know, but I will be coming back to that. Um, if you want to send me a news article, you can do so at on the Instagram, you know, send me a DM, send it that way. Or if you're old fashioned and you want to be a little bit more personal, I guess, personal, you can uh, send it to me via email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. Um, I'll be gladly to accept it there. Or if you just want to talk to me and say, what's up, dude? I like your podcast. I don't like your podcast. You should kill yourself. You know, anything you want to say to me, just go ahead. Anyways, uh, so stay tuned for This Week in Crime this Wednesday. And thank you for listening to Strange Talk Podcast because without you, the listener, Strange Talk Podcast would not be where it is today. So thank you. As always, stay strange.